0: (laughs) Take a few moments to pray, and then we can get started study. So let's pray, Father. Thanks for uh, just a, a night to meet, a place to meet, a time to meet. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. He's here to teach us. I ask God that he would have his way and that we would learn from him tonight. We pray revelation. We pray understanding. We pray application. I ask God that you would open up your word to us and that we would understand things that we've not understood before. We would take hold of not only new information, but there would be a change that would take place in the way we're thinking or the way we're seeing things or the way that we're understanding things around us. I ask you, God, that we'd be drawn closer to you, uh, that, Father, this would be a time where uh, we would be changed by just the work of your Holy Spirit in our lives. I ask you, Father, uh, just uh, anoint, I pray, empower I ask God that we would be open, that we would be open to receive what you have for us. So we ask you to have your way. We give you thanks, praise, and honor in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you have your Bibles, let's open up to Isaiah chapter 22. Reminder. Uh, for our podcast listeners that we have an interactive feature with Bible Study, and that is through a website at www.speakpipe.com. That's S-P-E-A-K-P-I-P-E dot com slash Monday Night Bible Study, all one word. You go there to that webpage, and there's a button that you can toggle, and you can leave us what would appear to be a voicemail. And we'd love to hear from you. you could be just saying hi. Or maybe you have a question about Bible study, or maybe you have a comment, or you just want to tell us where you're from. But we'd love to hear from you. Could be something good, guys, doing in your life. So drop us a line, uh, leave us a message, and we'll endeavor to play that at our next Bible study. Isaiah chapter 22. Just as a reminder, we do offer a podcast of all of our Bible studies. In case you happen to miss one, you can always uh, listen to it. Uh, We can provide you with the information that you would need if you look on SoundCloud uh, and uh, some of the other uh, ways that people get podcasts. Uh, You can find us. We are Monday Night Bible Study, uh, which makes sense because that's what this is. Uh, Usually all one word and it's a picture of Lily. Uh, so that you know that's us. So um, I've used it not only to go back and listen, but to, if I forgot something or was looking for something in particular from a Bible study, uh, but I've also used it to uh, to share with people as something they can listen to and and be able to share some of what we're doing here. So uh, just that's a friendly kind of public service reminder that we do have this available. If you need more details on, on how to uh, get that, just see somebody afterwards and we will get you a little more information. Isaiah chapter 22, I need a volunteer to read verse 23. Isaiah 22, 23. All right, thanks. Uh, You can read more on this. Uh, You can read some of the verses before and afterwards, and it gives you a little context on it. But this was a message to Shebna, and it was not a friendly message because uh, what God was doing through this message, he was reproving Shebna's uh, pride, vanity, self-security. He was just letting him know that his days were numbered, literally, and that he was going to die. And so it was It was really a, a pretty stern reproof of the way that he was living his life, the way he was choosing to, to live and the way he was choosing to see the world, the way he was choosing to go about the business that he was going about. Now, what's interesting about that is that Shebna was somebody that had power. He was somebody that had riches. He was somebody that had prestige. He was somebody that was in a position and yet, this is God just saying, it's just not the way it flies, at least not in, in His way of doing things, not in His economy. And so, uh, you think about those characteristics, pride, or vanity, or self-security, and, and you think about the things that, that, that people value. Well, people haven't changed too much, even over the past 2,500 years or so, You think we have because we have technological advances, but people themselves in the way that we go about our business, we see ourselves, we see the world, a lot of things remain the same, and this was something that was common in this day and is common today. Now You think about pride, you think about vanity, you think about self-security, those are things that not only are tolerated but are are sometimes really uh, encouraged in people. And so, uh, this is something that uh, generations now have been encouraged to be. And yet, we see a pretty stern rebuke going on from God to Shebna concerning these particular characteristics of his life. And uh, so, he's being told here that Eliakim will replace him. And and so, what you're seeing described and what, what you're reading about is Eliakim in in the way that God is going to establish him and the way that he'll be established in the kingdom. And so the way it's being described, and I'm going to take this a little bit of a different kind of tack on it than uh, I have in the past or maybe that you've heard before when you've heard somebody teach on these verses, uh, because I want you to understand them in not only the context they're in, the prophetic context is in which there is a prophetic context to it, but the prophetic context to these verses is limited. And, and that's true for a lot of prophecy. A lot of prophecy is good up to a point, and that was that's all it was meant for, and that's all God intended it for. And then when people take that prophecy beyond the point it was intended for, that's when things get weird. And, and that's when things get mixed up, and that's when things get messed up. Uh, you find that when it comes to things in the Bible. When you see people in the Bible, they'll take something that God had said, uh, and they take it too far, yeah, they, things get messed up. You see that even when people look back in the Bible, and they're trying to interpret things from the Scriptures, and they take it too far, things get Messed up. You see people that read apocalyptic literature from the Scriptures. And I'm talking about modern people that are reading it and trying to apply it to modern-day circumstances and things that are going on. Well, they take it beyond its intent. They take it beyond what it was meant for, and things get pretty messed up. And it's just, that's the way it is. Things get messed up when you take something that God has said and you extend it beyond what God intended it to be. And, and so... You know, for example, uh, years ago, I, and I've shared this with you before, uh, just during my undergrad, I did an independent study on apocalyptic, biblical apocalyptic literature, and it was interesting to go back in history and look at how apocalyptic literature has been interpreted over the centuries that, in the millennia that people have been interpreting apocalyptic literature. And so it it never failed that every generation where people were interpreting, say, the book of Revelation, or they're interpreting Daniel, or they're interpreting things that Jesus said, or or whatever it might have been, that they take that which is being said, and then they apply it to whatever the situation was that was going on around them during that day. And they felt perfectly justified and right in doing that, and yet time after time situation after situation when that application became more and more specific it got more and more messed up every time so somebody would apply you know depending on what the age was or depending on what the particular threat was or, or or whatever the particular crisis was or whatever the particular ruling government was or the war that was taking place or the war that was about to take place or whatever it was that was about to have the persecution that was taking place, whatever it was, they would take something like the book of Revelation and they would apply it to that and yet taking that too far is messed up and it would lead to people getting messed up. And so I just say all that to say this, that there is a limitation on a lot of prophecy as to how far we're going to take that. And to be willing to accept the fact there are things when you read, especially in the Scriptures, the apocalyptic literature that you're reading in the Scriptures, there are things that we don't know, that we haven't seen yet, that we haven't understood yet, that hasn't been revealed yet. And that's okay. And I know as humans we have this... This need to want to know, want to understand it. Well, sometimes we just don't and we can't. And to be willing to accept that. And I'll take this a step further too. There are sometimes things that God shows you. He might show you in a vision or he might show you in a dream or you might get a a prophetic word or somebody will prophesy over you. And instead of trying to hammer that into something that you can understand, or instead of trying to hammer that into something that you've experienced or try to hammer that into something that you can see coming to pass, just let it ride and, and see you know what's God going to do. There might be parts of that that you don't know yet. That's okay. There might be parts of that. You just need to let that go and see what happens and, and allow for it to breathe and allow for it to come to pass in its own time, in its own place. Because God sometimes sets things over us that that we think are some, somehow, you know, chronologically, oh, then it's going to be, that's going to be the next thing. You know, I had a prophecy over my life that I would be prophesied over concerning uh, five different things. And I received four of those things that, that it was said that was going to happen in my life. Four of those things came to pass within, say, like a six, seven year period. So you figure that out, right? i got four of them down in six or seven years, so the next one's coming in like a year or two, right? No, man. That's been like 25 years ago. And so number five has been long time coming. But I can't force it. I can't make it happen. And just because the other four came in seven years doesn't mean that the last one's going to come in the same time frame. God doesn't even see time like that. And so when we start trying to force things and we start trying to make things happen or we start trying to, to to figure it all out, that's when we mess it up. And so I just want to encourage you that, that, that there's certain things that we just need to allow for. This prophecy that's given here, Eliakim, uh, there's a prophetic nature to it. And the prophetic nature to it is that that it applies to and has been applied to Jesus. And we'll look and see how it's applied to Jesus. But not everything about this prophecy applies to Jesus. Okay? now Can you handle that? Yeah. See, there's portions of it that, that they do apply directly to Him. And we can learn things and we can gather things. We can glean things from this about Jesus that will help us understand Him, give us a fuller picture of who he is. But there are other parts of this that were definitely for Eliakim and for his life and for his rule and for what he was going to be and for who he was going to be. And so we don't want to take it too far. Because what happens when you take it too far? It gets messed up. All right, so let's not do that. But let's let's look and see what we can gather from this, what we can glean from this. All right, so uh, God says that Eliakim... He's going to be like a peg driven into a wall. Now, this is an interesting illustration. That word peg has different meanings. It could be a stake, like what holds down a tent. It could be a peg, you know, like that that would hold something in place. Or it could just be translated literally as a nail. And so what this is saying is that he would be as a nail driven into a wall. Now, what you need to understand about that is the way they built their houses back then is different than how we build our houses now. They're much simpler. The architecture of the day was different than how we put together things now. And so when these nails, these pegs, were driven into these walls, they were driven in before the house was put together. So in other words, they would drive the the nail into it they would lift the house together, and so the house would be formed together, and then they would use that peg to secure parts of the house to one another, leaving some of it sticking out. So it was literally a part of the structure of the house. And you know, it was some, one of the things that was actually holding it together. So don't get the idea of how we use a nail. If you want to hang a picture or something, the wall's already there, right? So we just put the nail, we try, look for a stud maybe, or use an anchor, right? Yeah. And so you nail it in, and then you hang something on That's not the idea of this. This was part of the integral structure of the house itself. And so these pegs, these nails would be driven in while stuff was still on the ground. Because if they tried to to, to drive this stuff in while the walls were standing, it might knock down the walls, right? Because they wouldn't be secure. So we're going to nail it in while it's still on the ground, put it up, it's a part of the house. It's a part of the structure, it's a part of the strength of what's holding the house together. Alright, so the peg driven into wall is a symbol of support, that's what it is. And, and I hope that makes more sense to understand it in the context of the architecture of the day. That it's a symbol of support. It's dependable. It's secure. It's a hold, is what it is. And yeah, they would leave a portion of it sticking out, and it would have like a like a square on the end of it, like a dice, like a die, uh, one of the dice, a die. And so it'd be on the end of it, so you could hang things on it—pots, pans, curtains. Uh, you might have one over a window. You'd hang some kind something over it. But they would use it as a functional thing after the house was built, but it was also a structural thing while the house was being built. So you have to see that. He's going to be, and he says, you will be like a peg or a nail driven into the wall. In other words, what he was saying of Eliakim is that you will be a symbol of support. You will be dependable. You will be secure. You will be a hold. And all of those things are super important. Now, thinking about Jesus, part of the prophecy, and of this coming to pass about Jesus, that makes sense. And, and those are qualities that we need to apply to Jesus in our lives. In other words, looking at Jesus as a support, as dependable, as secure, as a hold in our lives, that we can rely on him, and, and that he's going to be there. That He's a part of how things in our life are going to be held together. Functional in the everyday things of life. Integral in us being strong, us being able to withstand the storm, us being able to withstand the wind, us being able to withstand the rain, us being able to withstand whatever comes our way, the flood or whatever it is, that He's part in parcel with in the symbolic of the support, the strength, and the structure that we need, the security we need in those times. And be willing to see Him that way and depend on Him that way. I think sometimes we, we look at Jesus and and uh, I know this is kind of a cliche, but the whole idea is like, well, you know, we face something going on in our life. Our first go-to needs to be Him. Now, And I know that that kind of gets lost every now and then where our first go-to is us. Our first go-to is our wits. Our first go-to is our strength. Our first go-to is our ability. Our first go-to is uh, whatever it is. And and I think that's a, a huge mistake. And the reason I think that's a huge mistake is because I believe, if you look at this passage and you look at it in context, uh, Shebna, that's why he was rebuked. Because his first go-to was Shebna. His first go-to was his pride, his vanity, his self-security. And he had been rebuked for that. And in contrast to him, we have like him, who he's being described as someone that, that would be the nail and part of the structure. In other words, it wasn't going to be that he was just going to depend on him. Right? It wasn't a self. It was someone else. See, he represents that someone else. That, that the, the, the people that Shebna represents, Shebna represents do it yourself. And unfortunately, Christianity, especially in Western Christianity, has gotten that mindset. You do it yourself until you can't, and then you ask Jesus for help. That's a problem. That's a real problem. Because we, we're missing the point. We're missing our dependence on Him. We're missing the dependence, the way we should see Him as one of support, dependable, secure, a hold in our life. Ezra 9 to 8, somebody look at that. There's another hold, there's another peg, another nail that's being described here. Ezra 9.8. But now for a brief moment, the Lord our God is gracious leaving us and giving us a firm place in the and so our God gives to our eyes for All right. That passage, it's talking about Ezra, of course, is part of uh, when the Israelites returned from uh, the Babylonian captivity. And, and what he's describing there is the grace of God that brought back that remnant. Because it was the grace of God, and he saw it as as allowing them to come back. And what he describes there, he says he gives us a secure place within his house. Not a house, his house. And that secure place, it's the same word that's used here. It's the nail. It's the peg in the wall. And that secure place and that peg in the wall that he is prophesying there, even though you wouldn't necessarily see that as a prophecy, that is a prophecy, he's describing Jesus. Because that is the peg, that is the nail. And so he's saying that this is the generation to generation to generation that comes after him that as God brought them back in His graciousness, as God gave them this place, that He would be the peg, He would be the nail that would be their security, that would be their constant, that would be their support, that would be their sure abode for the generations to come. Jesus represented that. It is. So Eliakim, another thing about Eliakim that... That matches Jesus is that uh, he came from obscurity. He came from uh, just out of nowhere. He didn't have the right tribe. He didn't have the right family. And God takes people from obscurity. And you think about David in the the house of Jesse. He was the youngest of the house of Jesse. He came out of nowhere. Uh, He wouldn't have been picked out of a crowd. He wasn't like Saul, head and shoulders above everybody, and good looking and and the guy you want to have king he wasn't like that he was obscure he was in the field he was a shepherd he 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 didn't have the characteristics that would have made him stand out and yet that's who god chose and and so you've got jesus he's coming out of you know the wrong tribe he's coming out of the wrong family he's coming out of the wrong place i mean you, you think about how you know they argued about, well he can't possibly be the Messiah because he's from the wrong tribe. he can't possibly be the Messiah because he, he's from the wrong town, they supposed he can't possibly be the Messiah because you know all of these reasons he couldn't possibly be the guy, so that's obscurity he comes out of obscurity, and, and there he is. well, Lyakim was like that too. He didn't come out of any kind of background that people would look at him and say, "Oh well yeah, obviously that guy's the king." No. So He was called. He was anointed. Describes Him being given a throne of glory, kingly. A resting place for Him to abide. So so, so far, we're kind of on the same path, right? We've got Eliakim prophecy, Jesus prophecy. We're kind of on the same path. What can we learn about Jesus? We learn about support, dependability, security, a hold to hold on to. We, we learn, learn about a sure place to live with Him, a constant place to live with Him, all being provided. All being provided. We also learn from this uh, a principle of obscurity that I believe God takes delight in bringing people from obscurity into service. And whatever our family is, whatever it is we come from, wherever it is we came out of, whether we were Christians, we weren't Christians, whether we were from the right family or the wrong family, or whatever it is, it doesn't matter. And that principle of obscurity, of obscurity, I believe, is something that God uses toward His glory. Because I believe He enjoys that, and I believe that it brings glory to Him to bring people from nowhere. Because if you think about the people that everybody expects to do great things, you know, it, it's kind of interesting that it's like, oh, well, yeah, of course He did. That's just what the way it is. That's what's expected. Well, no, um, God doesn't do things that way all the time. And so to look at that and say, well, it's just expected, well, I'm not sure we really know what to expect. I'm not sure that that's even a good statement. Be just... You think about the disciples. Where did they come from? Obscurity. Think about Jesus. Where did He come from? Obscurity. And and, and that's just how He chose to do things. Now, an exception to that would be Paul, who wasn't an obscure person. He was somebody that was known, well-known. Of course, he was working 100% against the church, but he was well-known. And probably, unexpectedly, on the road to Damascus, received a revelation of Jesus and started serving Him from that time forward. So, while not obscure, kind of weird. Because you never know what might happen. So, to to look at that and to try to put God in a box, and, and, this, and I'm talking about you and your life. all right, You, your life. You look at your life say, well, this doesn't match up. Well, probably not. Well, I don't see how this is going to happen. Yeah, that's why you need God. Yep. I don't understand, you know, why would you call me that? Like, yeah, I don't understand lots of stuff about the way God does things. I just don't. And so, I, we never know. And, and we, we can't put God in that kind of a box in our own life where we're hindering ourselves and hindering the progress that God has for us. We're limiting ourselves through our own weird expectations. Weird meaning what? Not in line with what God has. Not in line with the way God does things. Not in line with the way the principles the way God does things. You keep expecting God to do things like we do. You keep expecting God to do things like man does or like a business does or or like like the world system does, but He doesn't do things that way. And when we keep expecting that and we keep looking for that and we keep applying that to our own lives, all we're going to do is hinder our own growth and hinder God using us because we're misapplying stuff that's not going to work in the kingdom has never worked, will not work, isn't going to work in the future, and we're missing something that God has for us. So Eliakim is described as that peg driven into all that nail driven into the wall. And and so God was saying through that is that in, in His hand He was going to establish these things. That stability was going to be in His hands. You think about nails... They provide structure, but they also provide convenience. And they bring strength. And as I said, they're worked in as the thing is built. And everything that you have in your house of value that you don't want to keep on the floor, back that day, you would put on one of those nails. And so you hung what was valuable to you on those nails. And again, they weren't just nails that were driven into wallboard. They were actually holding the house. And so you stuck the stuff that you wanted to preserve. You stuck the stuff that mattered. You stuck the stuff you didn't want touching the ground. You stuck the stuff that you didn't want getting wet or muddy or dusty or messed up or eaten by bugs or whatever the case may be. And you put it on those nails. You put it on those pegs. And so you hang what... You value there, and so I think you can still apply this toward Jesus again. I think this is still part of that prophecy it's still part that applies to who Jesus is is that is that we hang our that those valuable parts of our life, those things that matter to us in our life we need to hang on him. we need to depend on him for. It's a huge mistake to stray from that. Uh, and, I, and I think of, the the one area I think of, I mean, like right off the bat when I start thinking about this stuff, is the whole uh, area of relationships. That we, we get some point in our life and we're just going to make it happen instead of hanging it on Jesus. It's like, oh, I, I want this for my life. He knows that. I want this, you know, I want to I want to see this happen in my life. Well, he knows that. And there's a problem though when we begin to just make it happen ourselves. And that's true for anything. It could be for a job, that could be for whatever, all right? Money, retirement, uh what it doesn't matter. But it creates a situation where we're not hanging that thing which we value the most on the thing that is most secure. And so we, we, may, we may strike out and do something on ourselves. So we'll do it ourselves. And yet, the thing that we're doing ourselves isn't very secure at all. It's very flimsy and, and very dangerous. And it doesn't work out a lot. Most of the time it doesn't work out. And so we're trying to make it happen. Well, making it happen... And to me, that's a mistake. It's tempting. I just want to see something happen. Anything. You don't mean that. You don't mean that. You think you mean it, but you don't mean it. Because the end result of it is not good. The end result of it not only affects your life, but it could affect the lives of other people. The end result of it is something that may affect you for years and years and years to come. Anything's better than nothing. That's not true. Because sometimes things are worse than nothing. Because they create a situation that doesn't need to be created at all. But to say that in the moment, it's hard. But I do believe God desires us to have stability in our lives. Well, that needs to happen that we put our things on Him. I do believe God wants us living in a, in a stable environment around us, but it involves us taking stuff that we value and sticking it on Him. And and you can never believe the devil when he tells you God doesn't understand. You can never believe the devil that God doesn't care. You can never believe the devil when he says God does. He's not looking out for you. Never believe the devil. Oh, this, this is something he wants you to take care of. He's, he's not, this is outside of his purview. Nope. Those are all lies of the enemy. Your whole life is in His hand. Your whole life is in His vision. Your whole life is in in what He has for you. He didn't forget. He's not overlooking your needs. He's not overlooking stuff that you want even. He's not overlooking the desires of your heart. But we have to have some kind of trust, and that's, that's that word faith, we have to have some kind of trust in our lives that He is looking out for us and He has the best in mind. And that we can't see the beginning, we can't see the end, we can't see the whole picture like He does, and we just don't know. And so, us trying to reach in a moment in time and fix something because we want it is putting ourselves in a very vulnerable and a very bad position. And so we need to hang the stuff that matters on the nail. And with a nail by the peg, I'm talking about Jesus. Now here's a little departure. Somebody go down to verse 25, Isaiah uh, 22, 25, and read that. Isaiah 22, 25.
1: The Lord of Heaven's armies also says, The time will come when I will put out the nail that seems so firm. It will come out and fall to the ground. Everything it supports
0: will fall with it. I, the Lord, have spoken. Alright. So, this isn't Jesus. This is a lie account. And remember what I said at the beginning? This prophecy will go a certain distance. And then that's it. Alright, so Eliakim, he had been prophesied over, and so he says, this is who you're going to be, this is what it's going to look like, this is going to be your role, this is what's going to happen, the nation of Israel is going to depend on you, the nation of Israel is going to hang whatever they care about on you, and all the rest of that kind of stuff. But what happens at the end of Eliakim? What does God say? Something clear there, right? Yes. Out. Okay, so it pulls the nail out. What happens when the nail pulls out of the structure of the house? Whole. whole house falls down, right. Now, why is this important? There's a lesson to be learned in this. Right? There's a lesson to be learned in this, that's this. That God established him for the time that He established him for. But as is the way of every person, is the way of all flesh, what happens to Eliakim eventually? He dies, right? Right, he's dead. That's the way of all flesh. All right, we all die. All of us, every single one of us. And so ultimately, ultimately, and that's why I want to go back to Jesus in a second, but ultimately people whether or not and it doesn't matter how you look at them, it doesn't matter what you want to think about them, it doesn't matter anything else that you have in your mind, people will ultimately fail because we're people. Uh, and the way of all flesh is death. So that means that from the time you're born, you're in the process of dying. All right? All of us. And I know that's a pleasant thought, but it is the case. It is the case. Uh, and, and so there's been some notable exceptions in Scripture. Uh, Enoch is one of them that he was just taken. Elijah was taken. All right? Yeah? That's about it. I mean, you know, I mean, there's not a lot, really a lot of others. I mean, so, so truthfully, truthfully, you know, we're all on the same train. All right? We're all on the same train. And and so as God prophesies over us, as God prophesies over people, as God uses people, whatever it is that He does, there there comes a point where there's a limitation to that. And it's not because the person's a terrible person, it's not because they're weak, it's not because they failed, it's not because they're, they're, they're not where they should be spiritually, it's not any of those things, it's just that they're people. And there's a point of failure for every person, every single person. And And that's just how it is. And that's why, when it ultimately, when it comes right down to it, the house, if you want to build your house, Jesus talks about building a house. He says you build it on the rock. Who's the rock? He's the rock. You want to talk about what kind of peg you want to put into the walls to hold the house up if it's going to remain secure and it's going to be sound? It's Him. Okay? He's the only one. And, and you know what's funny about Jesus, and, and kind of interesting about it? He was flesh. And what did I say about flesh? The way of all flesh is what? Death. Well, He died. He died too. Give us what Jesus is He rose from the dead. Victorious over death, victorious over hell, and victorious over the grave. That's how He rose. And so He's a good pig. You want to put together your house with a good nail? He's a good one. All right? You want to build your house on a rock? He's the right rock. Now what am I saying there? I'm implying through my statements, you don't build your house on a person. You get that? You don't use that person as the nail that holds your house together. Why? Because they will fail. And I don't mean that in a bad way. It's just what it is. And again, we're all going to die. You could be the best person in the whole wide world, but you can't help that. Right? Because that ain't up to you that's up to God. And so understand that. I mean really understand that. Really understand where you're putting your trust. Really understand where you what you know that nail that's going to hold your house together, that nail that's going to keep it, where you're going to put your valuables and you're going to put all that stuff that you care about that rock that you're going to build your house on, keep it in mind that that needs to be Jesus. Because like Him, as wonderful as He was, He died. And what happened when He died? That nail was pulled out and that house fell down. Because that's how it goes. People will die and people will fail. Jesus doesn't. He just doesn't. And, and you can love somebody to death, but that do not mean they're not going to fail, because they are. I mean, that's just the way it is. And so I can only encourage you that in this world of romance novels and the Hallmark Channel, <laughs> seriously, in this world that, that really promotes these romantic ideas, these fantasy ideas, all I can tell you is that there's some truth here that you really need to get a hold of. There's some practical truth that you you just got to get a hold of. And if I could save you the issues involved in putting your trust and hanging your value, what you value on a person, I would. If I could save you from it. I mean, some of you is too late, so sorry. But I, if I still could, if I could go back in time and save you from it, I would. But today, tonight, if you could hear me, which some of you can, some of you can't, I I really I pray that you can get a hold of this and you can find Jesus in all of this and and hang what you care about on Him. Let Him hold your house together. Build your house on Him as a solid foundation. Let's look at a few verses. Zechariah 10.4 We're going to compare. I mean, you got to like Him, which is, you know, I mean, He's a good guy. He's got a good prophecy over Him. He's still going to die. But let's look at, um, let's compare Christ to this. Zechariah 10.4 All right. So from where? Judah. Now, you know what's interesting about that is that Zechariah is apocalyptic in some ways, but definitely prophecy. And they refuse to see that. I mean, the the scholars of the day in time of Jesus, they refuse to see that. They refuse to see Jesus in this. They refuse to see... Uh, him and and understand that here's this idea, this peg, this this nail, same word, same exact word, but how is he described there? I mean, see it, how is he described there? And then look at his offspring, kind of interesting there. Yeah. Yeah, is he weak? He's strong, that's right. And And what's interesting about it is there would be those that would come after him. It talks about like his offspring there, or what you might take as his offspring. Do you see that? Yeah, yeah, how many generations, how many generations that you know that's us being described in that? that we are the generations, and I know the Bible describes him as our brother and we're his brother and all the rest of that stuff, and we're not literally his children, but understand that that we're like him that we come like Him. And He's described as, you said, a weapon. He's described as strong. He's described as mighty. He's described as someone that is mighty God. He's someone that's Savior, Redeemer, Unchanging, Prophet, Priest, King. You look at Him through the Scriptures, and He's all of those things. But look at who He raises up. He raises up a kingdom of priests. He raises up a kingdom that... That we've been called after Him to be like Him. Prophets, people that speak for God, people that are miracle workers, people that are performing signs and wonders. I mean, that's who He calls us to be. And so there's a generation after generation as we find ourselves in Him, as we build ourselves. In Him, on Him, with Him. We hang what we care about on Him. In other words, we're putting Him in the center of whatever our will is His will. Alright? In other words, we find out, what do you have for me, God? That's what I want to do. Yeah. So we find ourselves centering our life on Him. But that's how we find ourselves strong too. Alright? In the weakness of the flesh, in the weakness of who we are, in the weakness that the world would look at and say, oh, you're so weak-willed, you're not even doing what you want to do. Oh, you're so weak in the mind that you're just following after what God says for you to do, or whatever it is. It's like, yeah, in our weakness, His strength is made perfect, complete, whole, real, powerful in our lives. Here's a weird one, Luke chapter 7, Luke chapter 7, 32 and 33, Thank you, God. But the Son of Man... The Son of Man came eating the
1: and A friend
0: all All right. So this verse, if you can understand what it's saying, it's describing people who are just... They just want to hear what they want to hear. They want to say what they want to say, and they will say it to one another. Okay? In other words, what do I want to hear? Oh, I want to hear peace and safety. All right, I'll tell you peace and safety. Is there going to be peace and safety? I don't know. Probably not, but I'll tell you that if you want to hear it. Yeah, yeah, that's what I want to hear. Okay, peace and safety. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, know, 90% of all romantic relationships are based on this principle. Tell me I'm pretty. You're pretty. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> I love you. <laughs> Tell me I'm good looking. You're good looking. Oh, I love you too. Yeah. Um, we wanna hear that, right? Yeah. You're the best. Yeah, you're the best. No, no, you're the best. Okay, you're the best. See, we we wanna hear it. All right. It works. That works every time, okay? Yeah. And uh and so that keeps working. And it's going to keep working, because that's what we want to hear. And and so we want to hear it. We will find somebody to tell us that. And when we find somebody to tell us that, we don't care anything else about them. They could be the biggest loser on the face of the earth. But they told me that, so that's it. Yeah. Um, No. That's the real problem. You see, because we just want to hear what we want to hear. You see, John the Baptist came, and he said things they do not want to hear. Because he told them they were a brood of viper. Their family is snakes. Your family is snakes. Your mama's a snake. Daddy's a snake. Everybody's a snake in your family. You're all snakes. You're all snakes. They want to hear that. They want to hear they come from a good family and they're all nice. Yeah. So what they say about John the Baptist? Oh, we're a bunch of snakes? Well, you, you don't eat or drink, so you got a demon. So Jesus came along and He told them things that they didn't want to hear either. He told them, like, oh yeah, you're a bunch of hypocrites. You guys, you say one thing, do another. You're two-faced. You're liars. You're terrible people. That's what He told them. That's what they say about Him. Oh, well, we don't want to hear that. So, Jesus, you drink and you eat, so you're a drunkard and, and, and you're a glutton and you got a demon too. <laughs> well, you see, it not those things don't make any sense, right? Like, he came eating and drinking, but he's got a demon, but John Baptist didn't come eating and drinking, but he had a demon. You know what the real problem was? It wasn't whether they were eating or drinking. You get it? The real problem was they were telling them things they didn't want to hear. And because they were telling them things they didn't want to hear, they just made up stuff about them so they could dismiss them. That's what happened. That's what was going on. But... You see, that's failure. That's a failure to really take hold of the truth. And the truth matters. I know it's not popular to say that. It's not popular to say the truth matters, but the truth does matter. And, and so, to be a people willing to hang what we care about on Jesus... We need to be willing to hear him and hear the truth. Jesus said that he's the truth. He's the way. He's the life. Yep. That's what he said. And so we have to hang what we care about on him, on the truth, and be willing to accept that. It's okay. It's all right. And not try to make our own way and not try to just just get around what we wanna hear. Yeah, we gotta fight that. You gotta fight that. You gotta fight just just getting around what you wanna hear. Especially if you got a large fantasy world. Or you've watched too many Hallmark movies. You gotta fight it, fight it, fight it. Because all of that stuff, even though I make fun of it, which it is kinda of funny, but I make fun of that But it feeds this part of us that we need to really fight against. The truth of the matter is we need to fight that. Somebody look at Revelation 3.7.
1: the
0: angel of the church in Philadelphia, right? These are the words of him who is holy and true, of all the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. All right, thanks for reading that. Now, in the in the prophecy to Eliakim, it says that the keys would be put on his shoulder. I don't know if you read it there. I I'm not going to go back to all the verses, but it's right around the verses we're reading that the keys would be put on his shoulder. Well, I want you to contrast in your mind the difference between keys being put on your shoulder and keys being put in your hand. Okay, that which was put on his shoulder was a symbol of... That's authority. And so what God was saying was that Eliakim would have authority in his life. But you ever tried to open a door from your shoulder? No, really. I mean, you think about that for a second. The keys represent something. But the practicality of actually opening and shutting doors, it needs to be in your hand. And so he had a partial fulfillment of what we're talking about. Again, go back to that prophecy being to a point about Jesus. Well, that was to a point. But the actuality of that prophecy is that Jesus has those keys in his hand and can actually open doors and close doors and can actually affect things around him. It's not a symbol of authority. It's not a symbol of being able to open doors and close doors. But he actually has the power to do it in his hand. The keys are in his hand. And there's a difference. It also talks about how um, God would give Eliakim, he'd give him the power to, say, to, to bind things and loose things. All right. Jesus also has that power to bind and loose. But you know who else has that power? We do. Uh, Matthew eighteen eighteen talks about that. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound on earth, and the heavens will be bound in the heavens on earth, and the heavens, heavens on earth. I mean, what we understand from that is that we have a power and authority of binding and loosing that's been given to us through our relationship with Jesus. Well, he can do that because the keys in his hand. Keys in his hand. He can do that. He can open. He can shut. He gives us power. Open. Shut. He gives us the power. Bind and loose. He gives us the power. Authority to do those things. Not on our shoulder, but in our hand to actually affect the things that are around us. But again, that has more to do with the place that we give Him in our life. Is He holding it together? Together? Are we hanging the stuff we care about on Him? Because it's from that position that we find ourselves with more power and more authority. You see, only God is secure. And, and that's the lesson I want you to get from Eliakim here. We learn some things about Jesus. We learn some things about our place. We learn some things about you know what it actually means and who He actually is. and and part of the work that he's doing, and and part of what that looks like in our life. We learn a a bunch of those things. But the other big lesson from this has to do with where the prophecy with Eliakim and Jesus ends. And it leaves us with the conclusion that only God is secure. Remember, the flesh is weak. The flesh is weak, but the spirit is strong. And I know we talk about this in it in, gets almost cliche in Christian circles, but we need to live a life of the Spirit. A life of the Spirit is a strong life. It's the life of the flesh that's weak. And the whole world is geared to tell you the exact opposite. That the life of the flesh is strong. The life of the Spirit is weak. It's just not true is absolutely not true. And to me, that's just a lie of the devil. To stop you from living the strong life that God has for you to live. And so we invest all of this energy, all of this effort, into something in the flesh that is never ever going to pay the dividends that it promises. It can't. And so all I can do is really encourage you to invest into the Spirit, to sow into the Spirit, to put time, to put your effort into the Spirit because that does pay the dividends that it promises and even more than we can understand. It's just hard because we live here. We live here. And we're surrounded by a bunch of things that tell us something totally different than what I just said. You have to have the strength of mind, strength of spirit, to be able to rise above that and live the life that God's called you to live. I just want to take a few moments and ask God for... Maybe a, a perspective shift tonight? That maybe there'd be some kind of uh, a, a change and a shift in paradigm of how we're seeing things or how we're understanding things? And just, I pray that the Word that we receive tonight would really uh, come to life in us. So Father, I I pray life into Your Word tonight. I I pray uh, real life in our, our bodies, in our minds, in our spirits. I pray, God, that Your Word would be like fire, living and changing things in us tonight. I just ask You that it wouldn't just be another Word that hits us and then falls off, but I ask You that Your Word would enter into us, enter into our body, enter into our spirit, enter into our soul. And I pray, God, it would be fire in us. A living fire to change us and to cleanse us, to empower us, to shake a few things, to to, to really begin to change the way that we're choosing to see the things around us god i pray for just a a renewal of life in each of us tonight and i pray god that as we take inventory of stuff that matters to us that we would take care to hang those things those things that we really care about, those things that really matter to us, those things that that we really look at and we value, I pray God we take care tonight to hang those things on Jesus to not to try to do it ourselves, not to try to to, to be selfish with it or try to keep it ourselves, but I pray God we put it in the most secure place, we put them in the most Secure the safest of places, and that's in you. Your time, your will, your purpose, your plan, your security, your safety, your strength, God. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. I ask God that you would shift, for some of us, our perspective on what we really want to hear that we would stop the itching ears, stop feeding the itching ears. We'd stop feeding our ears that just want to hear certain things, things that we we would seemingly give anything to hear. I pray, God, that You would deliver us from that lie in Jesus' name. I pray a cleansing and I pray a, pray a freedom from it, a deliverance from that lie in Jesus' name, thank you, Lord. So, God, thanks for uh, all you give us. We praise you as Savior. As the victorious King, the mighty God, who praise you, Lord, as one who is stronger than we can even understand. And we thank you that you've called us and empowered us to live as priests in your kingdom. We thank you that you empower us as prophets, you empower us, Lord God, as as, as a people of miracles and signs and wonders. Thank you. We'll give you thanks. I we'll give you thanks. I pray, God, we live in the truth. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: UCF of Syracuse is a relational gathering of diversity in action. Economics, education, employment, background, and culture span the spectrum as we gather for the purpose of life in Christ. You no, know, me and Christ are homies. That's good. He's really cool, mm-hmm. you know. We're super close, yo. Your homeboy? Yeah. All right. Anyways, so musicians, writers, painters. You know, my cousin's a painter. Yeah? What do you paint? Houses. Oh, man. My cousin, your cousin should hook up. Yeah. So, yeah, painters and other artists express their work through the body of life of this faith community, like the that. Well, see, there's a lot of people. Yeah.